Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, I'm going to go over the 10 myths that I came up with with fitness and nutrition. So we're going to cover quite a few topics today, um, and I'm going to reference quite a few articles um, and quite a few studies. So I'm going to make sure we mention all these in the show notes of the podcast. That way, if you want to go look at some of the research that I am citing and some of the things I'm talking about in more detail, you can just click the link in the description. You can go check those out. Um, I'm also going to recommend a few different places that you should be gathering information from as a coach or as a fitness uh, enthusiast who is seeking further ex- education. So, uh, and, I, and I say it that way because I don't want you to go look at these things if you are brand new to fitness because they do cost money to be a part of. Um, I'm talking about research reviews and, and uh, places and forums and things like that where you can get advanced information and education. But uh, we got to remember that some of it is pretty complex. So before you dive in and start reading studies, I think you should spend some time dieting, spend some time training, spend some time uh, working with a coach so you can just firsthand get experience uh, with somebody else um, and then listen to podcasts like these because that's ultimately how you're going to continue to grow. So today I'm going to go over 10 specific myths. Uh, I'm going to run through them real quick right now and then I'm going to go into each one. So the first myth is going to be the myth of hard gainers. They're not real. The second one is going to be starvation mode. Again, that's not real. Uh, genetic stop fat loss. I'm going to dive into that one. Uh, fasted versus fed cardio. Um, fast cardio being better is the myth. Men versus women, um, like the whole thing here is that men and women are the same. They have the same results. It's really not true. Um, there's actually a good line by, um, cannot remember her name. She has done a TED Talk. She has some courses. She's really, really popular in like the female athlete world. And she talks about how women are not small men. And it's very true. There's a lot of differences with men and women, and we can't ignore those. And they do factor in when we're talking about fat loss and or muscle growth. So we're going to touch on those too. Uh, shocking the muscle, this term shocking the muscle. We've heard that a million times, especially if you're into bodybuilding once upon a time, you read that in a article headline, or you heard somebody say that you need to try this new program to shock the muscle or, or use these drop sets to shock the muscle, complete false. Um, and I'm going to explain why that is not just false, but more so an improper way of interpreting that, that, uh, finding or that solution or that that cause or that benefit. Um, training should change for fat loss. Another myth. Um, a calorie is a calorie. All calories are equal. Another myth. Uh, low carb beats high carb. Again, another myth, and I'm going to explain why. And then last but not least, that keto is superior for fat burning. Um, and this one is debated by gurus all over the web constantly. So I'm going to, I'm going to break down some of the science and teach you guys why ketogenic dieting really isn't that beneficial and it's not superior for fat burning. 
with that being said, uh, we're going to jump into the podcast. But first, I just want to remind you guys, uh, do me a huge favor. Leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It makes the world of a difference to us and allows us to climb up the iTunes charts. And we're really just trying to get our information out to more and more people to help more and more people around the world. And you can help me directly by just leaving us a five-star rating and review. And then the second way, which helps even more, is to simply take a screenshot of this episode, post it on your Instagram story, and tag me at Cody.BoomBoom. I want to thank you for listening. I want to DM you to see if there's any help I can give you uh, personally, and then I want to share it on my story as well. Uh, Without any further ado, let's jump into the podcast. All right, so this first myth that we are going to be going over is the myth of a hard gainer. Um, I'm going to quote somebody uh, right now, Menno Henselmans, who has dug into some of the research on this, Um, and this is literally quoted from him. A new review on non-responders concluded it is unlikely that global non-responders to exercise exist. People that do not respond to a certain program have been found to respond positively to a different program with a different intensity, training, volume, or frequency. So this kind of competes against uh, shocking the muscle, quote-unquote, But which is a myth that I'm going to explain later on. But the difference here is simple. It's not that a new stimulus is what is or or helping people push through this feeling of hard gaining, quote unquote. Um, It's more so that hard gaining is not real. You're just doing the wrong program. So a lot of times when people come to us and they're like, man, I just can't build muscle. And then I help them put 10 pounds of muscle on over the course of a year. We completely shatter that paradigm for them. And, And it comes down to a few things. Number one, it comes down to calories. We've all heard it. Like you're just not eating enough. And a lot of times people are like, man, I'm eating so much food. And I'll say, hey, are you tracking your calories? No, I'm not. Okay, we'll start there. Then we'll find out you're really not tracking that much or you're not eating that much food. Um, A lot of times what I see, and this is one of the biggest problems, is if we just focus on calories, we end up, one, falling short on calories, and two, falling short on anabolic calories. So calories that are going to produce more anabolism, going to produce more muscle growth. Uh, And what I mean by here is mainly carbs and protein. Um, But the reason I'm saying this is because a lot of people just go, I don't need to track macros. I'm not trying to lose fat. I just want to build as much muscle as possible. I'm going to eat as much food as possible, right? So they go for really calorie-dense foods. What foods are really calorie-dense? Nuts, oils, butter, whole eggs, uh, red meat, fatty meat, salmon, like nut butter. The list goes on. Avocado. All these foods are high in fats. They're not high in carbohydrates. And some of them aren't are decent in protein, but most of them aren't even high in protein. So what happens is this person might be eating a good amount of calories, maybe maintenance, maybe even in a surplus, but it's predominantly coming from fat. They're eating 200 grams of fat, barely any carbs, um, or not enough carbs and barely any protein because they're so full on fats. Now this doesn't always happen, but I've seen this happen countless times for people who just aim to eat more calories. So we have to remember that yes, uh, triglycerides, fats actually do store in the, the muscle. There are muscle cells that pull in triglycerides and certain types of fats. However, the muscle is predominantly made of glycogen and amino acid. So if we do not have protein and carbohydrates coming into the body, we are not going to fill out uh, our muscles' bellies. We're not going to fill out the muscle tissue. We're not going to build as much muscle as possible. And we're also not going to perform as hard as we can or recover as well as possible because protein is what allows us to recover and carbs are uh, what allow us to perform hard in the gym, both of which allow us to have more volume and more intensity and effort in the gym, which ultimately is the stressor that leads to muscle growth. So first and foremost, if you think you're a hard gainer, track your macros, make sure you're following a high carb, high protein, moderate fat diet, and make sure you're in a surplus. 
we also have to remember um, thing number two about this myth. A lot of times people say they're a hard gainer, but when you look at their activity, it's through the roof. So I've had people say, man, I, it's just so hard for me to build muscle. And I'm like, okay, you're in a, you're in a surplus according to my calculation, but how much are you moving? Well, I'm on my feet all day for work and then I do CrossFit for two hours and I usually take my dog for a walk at night before I go to bed. And I'm like, whoa, dude, you're getting 20,000 steps a day and you're doing CrossFit, which is not the best modality for muscle growth. And it is one of the most high, the, the one of the higher activity uh, exercise routines that you can do that's going to really just kick up how many calories you're burning, right? You're constantly moving. You're doing a ton of work. Your energy expenditure is going to go through the roof. It's going to go up. Um, so a big problem with this is that a lot of times people's neat is too high. And sometimes we even see this, uh, when they push themselves into more of a surplus, their neat, their neat that they don't even know about their unconscious activity in increases as well. And now their energy expenditure increases and it stops them from building muscle because they're not in a surplus anymore. Um, and we see this with hyper responders to a reverse diet. People wonder why, why does so-and-so respond so well to a reverse diet and so-and-so gained a bunch of fat during a reverse. And it was the same calculation, slow process, blah, 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 blah. Well, the reason is because there's, there's kind of these toggles with your metabolism, right? And so one toggle would be eat more, move more. Um, and these are really good coin terms from uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Jade Tata, but eat more, move more would imply that I'm eating in a surplus, but as I eat more food, I end up moving more, right? And you can do that purposefully as an athlete, or you can do that accidentally through NEAT. So sometimes when people respond really well, it has nothing to do with any genetic outlier or anything crazy that they're just, they're, they have high carb tolerance or anything like that. All it means is that when they ate more food, they have a more adaptive thermogenic response. They have a more adaptive metabolism. And when they increase their calories, they end up moving more. So their steps increase every day. Their sleep gets better. They're fidgeting more. They're blinking more. They're talking more. They're moving more. They're moving and pacing in between sets in the gym. Maybe they're walking while they talk on the phone for work. Like the list goes on. You know, when I'm bulking, I can't not pace around the room when I'm on the phone. Like I'm constantly going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. When I'm cutting, I'll just sit. And I can just chill and I talk slower. And it's and it's truly just because of the energy flux, right? The less energy I have coming in, the less energy I'm going to put out. So point number two with this myth is that you're not a hard gainer. You just move too much. So – and I've, I've actually had to do this with uh, – I've done this actually with one of our coaches. So uh, Coach Brian on our team, I, I coached him for, for a long time. And we were trying to put on size and put on muscle. And I actually had to give him a step count to not go over. So as we were increasing calories, he, he just wasn't gaining weight and, it, but his neat was increasing. So I would say, Hey man, like, okay, you're, you're, you know, you're hitting 10,000, uh, 10,000 steps a day previously. I don't remember the exact numbers. It was a while ago, 10,000 steps per day previously. And now you're hitting 15,000. So we're going to drop that back to 10. I want you to maintain 10, right? Which can be difficult for people, but you, but again, this is where it's the, the reverse response of, of dieting where somebody's dieting. I'm like, hey, make sure you keep doing 10,000 steps because it's dropping as we go into a deficit because as you have – and this is one of the ways to compete with metabolic adaptation during a diet is if my calories go down, I'm naturally going to move less so I can try to move more purposefully by tracking my standing, tracking my walking, things like that. Um, and point number three is this idea of a new stimulus needing to be provided. And it's less about a new stimulus and more about the right stimulus. So – most hard gainers will say that they just can't gain weight, right? Um, and it's it's not typically the case. It's not that they can't gain size. They can't gain weight. But it's more so that they're just doing the wrong shit. So 
I don't want people to hear this and go, oh, I need to, sh- again, shock the muscle, right? That's why I put that myth down the line on this list because it, it's you, you don't just shock the muscle, right? So if, if you're a hard gainer, quote unquote, and you haven't been building muscle, um, it's not because you need to switch up your program every few weeks that's going to shock the muscle. It's because you're doing the wrong shit. So, so let's say – and it doesn't mean you're doing – theoretically what's wrong it means individually wrong and what i mean by that is you can some people respond really well to a high volume program in fact that's the only way they respond is when they're doing a ton of work some people respond really well to a low volume high intensity program right and then some people have to be right in the middle um, and it has a lot to do with stress levels cortisol levels being natural not natural um and genetics and in in some in some ways, muscle fiber type and some ways that we just don't even know. We can't even explain. Uh, but if you're an experienced lifter, you probably ha- can relate to this. I remember having a, a gym partner, uh, Theo Bowie, that uh, he was actually the co-host of this podcast years ago. And when we trained together, it was hard to find a program that worked for both of us because we trained together because he responded really well to low-volume training. And this guy could stay in the one to five rep range for 80% of his programming and then like six to eight for his accessory work right like really low reps low volume not very many sets overall just heavy lifting and he would grow right but for me i had to do volume so i i and which meant i couldn't do the heavy lifting too frequently because it just didn't it worked for me to get strong but it didn't work for me to build muscle um and more so if you're doing high volume you can't do high volume and high intensity you're just going to burn out so you kind of have this again like a toggle when volume goes up intensity goes down when intensity goes up volume goes down you have to kind of pick one um now what is fun for you might be different than what's right for you. So for example, if I want to grow, I have to do high volume. So for me, five or six days of lifting per week, it's usually an upper lower push pull legs or push pull legs repeat program. Um, reps always stay above eight, usually in the 12 to 15 rep range. Um, always chasing a pump, do a lot of sets per workout, a lot of sets per week, uh, high volume training. What I enjoy doing is actually low volume training because I like lifting heavy. I like doing explosive works, box jumps, sprints, uh, some like some Olympic stuff, especially like free weight style, like like dumbbell snatches and things like that, um, kettlebell clean, sled work, things like that that aren't very conducive for me to build muscle. It's explosive, powerful, athletic work, right? It's low volume. Uh, but during a cut, you can do that and maintain muscle really easily. So what I always recommend to people is like, hey, if you're if you're chasing growth, if you're chasing muscle growth, do what is going to work best for you, not what you enjoy most. Sometimes you have to sacrifice that. So for the last 10 months, I was strictly doing bodybuilding in those higher rep ranges with high volumes, five to six days a week. And I grew. I gained a lot of weight, and it helped a ton. Now that I'm in a cut, I switched it up, and I went back to lower volume, four days a week. Like What I really enjoy doing because I don't need to build muscle right now. I just need to maintain muscle and strength, and I want to have fun because I'm in a deficit. So point being with this is it's not a new, it's just the right one. So you have to find out like, does a low frequency, high intensity, high, uh, moderate volume work for you? Or does a high volume, moderate frequency, low intensity work for you? Or does a moderate of all three work for you? Like you kind of just are genetically gifted and you can do anything, right? So, so you might be somebody that trains four days a week, upper, lower split with low rep ranges, heavy weights, and not very much volume. It's a moderate frequency. Or you might be somebody that has um, a high frequency and a high volume, uh, but very low intensity. You're training full body four or five days a week with high rep ranges, high volumes, um, and, and a good amount of frequency, but... Uh, a low intensity so you can manage to sustain that frequency and volume. So we have these toggles. We have to toggle them up and down to, to balance out and, and not 
burnout, just to avoid burnout and just to be able to recover properly. Um, and that's ultimately what it comes down to is finding the modality that you can recover from and that you grow with. Um, and some people do really well with high frequency programs because they recover really fast. So full body sessions are easy because they can recover and get back to it. Other people, they don't work very well because it takes them days to recover. So an upper lower or a push pull leg split would work better. Uh, but point being, um, there is literal studies. There was a, a review um, and, it, and it literally concluded that, that it is unlikely that global non-responders to exercise exists, which means that they don't exist. <laughs> so this idea of a non-responder does not exist. It, it truly just just gives us more merit to the fact that individualized or tailored coaching is more beneficial because it allows us to hone in and figure out what works for you, um, even if you feel like nothing has worked in the past. Myth number two, starvation mode. Um, so I will uh, I will link that uh, study on the non-responders to this description. But the second one is starvation mode. This this idea about starvation mode. Um, and I'm going to link this study as well. Um, but uh, it's the Minnesota starvation experiment, right? So a lot of people know about this, especially if you are a coach, if you're a nutrition coach, if nutritionist, a dietitian, you've probably went through this research study because um, you will learn. This is how we kind of started learning more about metabolic adaptation, right? This is what kind of gave us the insight of metabolic adaptation. What is this? Um, but it's really good study to look at when people say like, oh, like my body's in starvation mode. And, and the reality is, is like starvation mode is this idea that, you know, you're, as you lose weight, your body starts holding on to body fat because it's, it wants to avoid, um, the starvation dying essentially. Um, when someone eats, so think about it like this, when someone eats dr dramatically less calories than what their body needs on a daily basis for an expended, extended period of time, um, it, that does not influence the body to start holding on to fat in, in, in some like survival mechanism to try to avoid dying, right? It, the easiest way to look at this is, you know, there's third world countries where children are starving. In fact, we, I have I have pictures in my desk uh, of this because uh, we donate to the Children's Hunger Fund every single month, and we've we've actually donated over twenty thousand meals at this point, which is really cool. But those meals goes to people that are starving, and you see these kids starving, and they're sticking bones. So if starvation mode was a thing, they would have lost a little bit of weight, and then their body would have kicked into starvation mode and held onto body fat to preserve these hormonal processes and respiratory and functions that that we need in order to survive but this is why starving to death is a real thing because you literally can starve to death but that's not what's happening when you are at a plateau in weight loss you're just simply at a plateau so there is a really really famous study that is known um, by most coaches dietitians and, and nutritionists um, as the minnesota starvation experiment um, it's been written about in massive detail across the internet tons of times and a bunch of publications and research reviews and, and stuff like that. So you can really just search Minnesota starvation experiment and you'll get a bunch of different opinions. Uh, but here's kind of like the, the, the bullet points. Um, they took 36 men uh, and they put them on a starvation quote unquote diet over the course of 24 weeks. Those individuals started out eating 1560 calories. So 1,560 calories per day. And over the course of 24 weeks, they're caloric intake was lower to ensure that weight loss kept happening. So just like any other weight loss process, they went into a pretty big deficit and then they started chopping calories as time went on just to make sure that they kept losing weight. 
Along with their calorie deficit, these men were expected to walk or run 22 miles every single week, which is a ton. But basically, they had to divvy that up throughout the week. So they're doing exercise as well. Um, and in the end, uh, this meant that most of the individuals were placed in a calorie deficit that was about 50% of what a normal daily intake was supposed to be. Um, which means that it's dramatically so, – so, for example, my maintenance is probably like 2,700. So that's me jumping into a 1,300-calorie diet. <laughs> you know, like no shot. Like that's crazy. Um, so 1,350 technically if we want to get math savvy. But point being is these men got sickly skinny. So if you look up Minnesota starvation – uh, experiment, you will see the individuals that went through the study. I mean, like literal, like I'm looking at a picture right now, I can see their sternum. I can see all of their ribs. Uh, it doesn't even look like they have a calf. It's just straight shin to kneecap. Um, this one dude's hamstring looks like it's almost non-existent. It's just crazy. They're so, so thin. Um, so what's, what gives here? Why didn't they go into starvation mode? Well, because starvation mode is not a thing. What happened is they cut calories consistently over time and they kept losing weight. So when most people think that uh, they are going through starvation mode because they are at a rough plateau, even though they're trying their hardest to diet and lose weight, what's really happening is just metabolic adaptation. So metabolic adaptation is this process that you have to lower calories or increase your deficit as weight is lost because your your maintenance caloric intake will adapt to the uh, intake you're coming in, right? You're bringing in. So, and this is this is a survival mechanism by our body, but essentially, physiologically speaking, our body is just trying to lower its its functions, its processes, and its metabolic systems in order to compensate for the lower amount of calories coming in. So, if you drop from 2,000 to 1,750, like you're on a 17 uh, 1,750 calorie diet, that's 250 calorie deficit. Um, you're going to be in a 250 calorie deficit, but after four, five, six, eight weeks, it depends. Everybody's metabolic adaptation rate is, is going to be individual. But after that period of time, it's no longer a 250 calorie deficit. If it's a deficit at all at that point, it's a small deficit, 50 to hundred calories. And at that point you have to drop more calories in order to continue that rate of progress week to week. Um, and that's the only way to get away with it. Now, you can do this by moving more or training more or having more steps per day. You can sometimes focus on health, and that can increase energy expenditure. So if you improve hormones, improve stress, you get better sleep, so on and so forth, you will burn more calories. So that will help. Um, but most likely, you're going to have to drop calories because you got to create a bigger deficit. That's why you can't indefinitely diet. You can't just, just progress linearly consistently, and you can't expect to stay on a diet long term because it just doesn't work that way. Um, so metabolic adaptation is absolutely, absolutely true. And that's usually what's happening to you if you think you are in starvation mode. And the reality of, of this is that when your body, some people have metabolic adaptation more severely than others, and it slows your progress down. Um, two things happen when we diet. Number one, these hormonal processes slow down. Therefore we get less results from the calorie deficit that we're in, which means that we have to create a bigger deficit, and that is very common. And the second thing is that because hunger hormones, stress hormones, other things are going out of whack, cravings go up, ability to adhere goes up, goes down, consistency goes down, um, precision with, with tracking goes down. Like you end up not really adhering to the deficit is my point. Because you're in a deficit and because thyroid function slows down, testosterone function slows down, cortisol increases, which is a stress hormone, um, your metabolism is lowering. 
slowing down. You're not your ex, ener, energy expenditure decreases, which means you're you're moving less, which means you're burning less. So a lot of things happen that lead to either a a slowdown in weight loss unless you combat those things and really focus on them, or b uh, a lack of adherence. There's there's tons of people who think that they're in this plateau, but really they're just not adhering for shit. So um, really really important to understand, but. Point being, the myth of starvation mode is not true. The Minnesota starvation experiment showed that really well. Um, children in third world countries and people in third world countries starving to death show that really well. It's not possible. What is happening is that your metabolism is slowing down a little bit and your maintenance calories are lower than what you think. Therefore, you're not actually in a deficit. So if metabolic adaptation keeps occurring, you're, you, you think – According to a TDE calculator, your maintenance is 2,000 calories, but really, because of metabolic adaptation, it's 1,500. So you're not going to lose weight on 1,600. You'll probably gain weight, right? Because you're in a surplus, right? Unless you reverse diet properly and get your maintenance back up. Um, but at the very like least, you're not going to lose weight. You're going to have to go below 1,500 calories because 1,500 calories has become your new maintenance range around there. Um, but that is the myth of starvation mode. It's just not the case. Um, Next, we have genetics stop fat loss. This is one that uh, I, I look at more. It's definitely a myth, but it's also an excuse. And I don't want to piss people off by saying you're making excuses. But the reality is, is that it, it really is just an excuse. You know, um, it's like when when somebody is really stressed out and you're like, hey, I think you should meditate. And they're like, oh, I don't have time. It's like, oh, OK. Or I, I want to work on personal development. Okay, well, I think you should read this book. Ah, I don't like reading. Like, okay, now you're just making excuses, right? Um, and, and to be honest, the genetic card truly is an excuse. Yes, genetics do play a role. Um, I would say less in fat loss um, and more in, in muscle growth for sure. And also more in maintaining a lean physique. So I think, you know, a lot of people look at genetically gifted people who are super lean and they think, man, they just get shredded easily. And although they look shredded, it doesn't mean they get shredded any easier than you. Uh, it, it more so means that they've been super lean. They were born pretty lean. They've made, they were an athlete their whole life. They've maintained a lean physique for over a decade. And because of that, they stay lean. They don't, they just never got fat. Right. So for, for individuals like, like I've even been told like, ah, oh, yeah, well you have good genetics. And I'm like, yo, I grew up unathletic and overweight for years. I have the worst genetics, right? But if you dial things in for a long period of time, that goes away because I do seem like I have good genetics now because I build muscle really easily. I can get lean fairly easily if I'm actually consistent because um, I don't like dieting. <laughs> but point being is it, it's not because of my genetics. It's, it's, it's epigenetics, right? So epigenetics are the idea that your genetics are determined by your environment and what you've done over the years. And, and I've been training hard and dieting smartly for the last 10 fucking years, 10 plus years. So I've changed. I've altered the way my genetics affect my physique. Once upon a time, I did have shitty genetics, but it's not about the genetics, about the time spent, right? So a lot of these, in, in it's like 90% of the time at least, all these genetically gifted people, quote unquote, that are super lean all the time, they have been that way since they were 12 years old. They've been super lean. They've been super shredded. They, they've stayed athletic for years and years and years. Um, and that's the reason they look like that. So genetics don't stop fat loss. Genetics can make fat loss more difficult. 
they can make the processes different, similar to the hard gaining thing, right? It's not that you can't gain muscle. It's that you're not doing the right things to build muscle. So in this case with genetics stopping fat loss, it's not that your genetics won't let you lose fat or get lean. It's that your genetics are, are putting up a fight, right? Your predisposed genetics, your predisposed everything, like what you have, what you're born with, the parents you had, they are going to put up a fight. So maybe your metabolism is more or less adaptive, right? So, and, and this works in both the positive and negative. So if your metabolism is really adaptive, if you have a very adaptive metabolism, um, that's great. This is actually kind of how I am. Uh, I can push my calories up pretty damn high and I'll just build muscle and I won't put on a lot of fat. Um, I can increase my maintenance calories pretty high. Obviously, there's a, there's a point where that it's not, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to eat 5,000 calories and not get fat, but there's a point where it stops. But point being is, is I have an easy time reverse dieting. I have an easy time pushing my maintenance up. I have an easy time maintaining so on and so forth because my metabolism adapts pretty quick. So when I increase calories, my metabolism catches up pretty quickly and I'm able to maintain weight. And that's a positive thing. Uh, however, it's, it can be a negative thing when I'm trying to lose body fat because when I go into a deficit, my metabolism also adapts pretty quickly and it means that I have to drop calories more often and more frequently. Um, whereas a less adaptive metabolism can be a con when it comes to building muscle. I've worked with guys specifically who it was kind of hard to build muscle because their metabolism adapts, uh, doesn't adapt, right? So we add a little bit of calories and they start gaining and that's good, but we have to be careful because otherwise they'll just gain fat because their metabolism doesn't adapt quickly. But when we go into a cut, we create a deficit and it works for 12 weeks straight. We don't even touch anything. I have one guy specifically that I'm thinking of that doesn't have a very adaptive metabolism and we made an adjustment and we've just been coasting, losing weight every single week in his cut and we haven't had to adjust his calories any lower. Like that's, that's, that makes the dieting process way better. Now, granted, low calorie is low calorie, so your hunger hormones are going to signal relative to your body's ability to maintain at a higher caloric intake. And what I mean by that is that if I have to drop my calories to 1,800 to lose weight, that's the equivalent to somebody else's 1,200, right? So they look at it and they're like, Fuck, I have to get all the way to 1,200 just to lose weight. And although I'm eating 600 more calories and it seems like it'd be way better – I'm just as hungry as you and I'm having just as many hormonal consequences as you because it's all relative to the person's metabolism and system. Um, but the whole point of this, this specific myth is that genetics don't stop your fat loss. Genetics could potentially make it more difficult because they can give you more or less adaptive metabolism. Um, your genetics could potentially give you more muscle, which would change the, the duration, the, the aggression, the intensity and how long it takes essentially to lose weight, uh, it definitely can affect that, can affect your hormonal profile. Um, and your epigenetics affect more than anything on your your fat loss. So what have you been doing over the last decade that would alter, for, for better or for worse, your metabolism and how well you lose fat and you lose body weight? Um, but the myth is that genetics stop fat loss. Genetics do not stop fat loss. You cannot blame genetics. You just have to play with it. This is again, a testament to individualized and tailored coaching. When you have somebody who is there to see and understand and assess how your body works, how your metabolism works, how your body is going to lose fat and your specific genetic pro makeup. Now I can use that data to adjust your plan to find the right rhythm to get you losing in a consistent manner. Um, so Genetics, 
Do not stop fat loss. You can't blame genetics. They can make it challenging for some, um, and they can change the the way we go about it for most people, um, but they will not completely stop or halt fat loss. You cannot blame that anymore. Hey, guys. I wanted to take a brief moment to mention something really cool before you jump back into the podcast. The thing I am talking about that is so damn cool is the tailored trainer. This is a personal trainer in your pocket. This is a one-stop shop to get access to all of my exclusive programming. Whether you can train three days, four days, five days, or even six days a week. If you want an upper-lower split, or a push-pull legs, or a full body, or a more athletic-based program, or you want conditioning, we literally have everything you can imagine and a private group that allows you to get feedback and critiques on your exercise form when you post videos for me to check out. And I'm available every single day to answer your questions. This is the place to get my advice and my training done for you with app software access that delivers the program to you every single day. So if you want access to the Taylor Trainer for less than a cup of coffee a day, yes, that's less than $2 a day, you can click the link in the description now. Head over to tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash tailored-trainer and you can sign up today. Without any further ado, let's get back to the podcast. All right, so the next myth is fasted cardio. Fasted cardio is one of those ones that has been around for decades because it is a typical bodybuilding strategy that has been used to burn more fat. And it and it's used in a way, or it's th- theoretically speaking, it's used to burn more fat than carbs because when you're in a fasted state, your body is primarily using fat as fuel. Um, and when you're at a low intensity, your body's primarily using fat as fuel. And the reason this has always been uh, so easy to believe is because theoretically that makes sense. When we are fasting, uh, especially if you are you know, at least 12, but closer towards like intermittent fasting levels, like 16 hours and so, um, your body is producing more ketones. So you can actually get into ketogenesis, not through a keto diet, but just through fasting properly, um, even if it's to a mild extent. So the idea of doing fasted cardio um, after a fast, quote unquote, makes sense because your body will primarily be using fat. Um, when you're at a low intensity, your body will be primarily using fat as fuel as well. But, but the, the catch here is that the total caloric expenditure that is, that is happening over the course of that session and day is the same even if more carbs are burned during the session because of the epoch, so the um, exercise post-oxygen consumption, basically calories burned after the activity is done because of that effect, the net calorie loss is going to be the same whether you do faster or fed. And that's what studies have shown. Um, In fact, I have a little quote here from a uh, study on PubMed that I will link in the show notes as well said, in conclusion, our findings indicate that body composition changes associated with aerobic exercise in conjunction with a hypocaloric diet, which is a deficit, are similar regardless whether an individual is fasted prior to training. Hence, those seeking to lose body fat conceivably can choose uh, to train either before or after eating based on preference. Um, Basically, what it's saying is when it comes to fat loss, I would say different for... uh, building muscle and stuff because I think fed training is going to do more for muscle and strength than fasted training in most cases. Uh, but for fat loss, it really doesn't matter because the net caloric expenditure is going to be the same no matter what. Um, so what is, if we dig deeper into the science, what is really happening here from my understanding, from what I've looked into over the years 
is when we do fasted cardio, yes, we may be burning a bigger percentage of body fat during that session than we would if we had carbohydrates or fuel period before. Uh, because we're in that fasted state, we are more prone to keep uh, using ketones and ketosis and, and burning pure fat. Um, but just because the percentage of what's burned in that session doesn't mean that the net total is going to be better because if we have fuel before training, if we have carbohydrates before training, protein, all these different things, typically the energy expenditure as a whole increases because you have more fuel going into that session. Um, so when they first did research and it showed that felt that it might be better, it's because they were just looking at a, an acute setting, like, you know, during that period of time, well, of course they had calories coming in before the cardio started. So that immediately changes the, the ratio of fat burn to loss. Um, but at the end of the day, they've done a bunch of different studies on this and, and that's, that's the truth. Now there are some people who will argue for it to improve metabolic flexibility, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but I think it's a very, very, very rare or specific scenario that this is applicable. And the idea here is that if you do fasted cardio um, at low intensities for longer durations, your body will get better at using fat for fuel. And this is true because when we are in a fasted state, our body has to use fat. And when we haven't consumed anything, we have no fuel uh, and like uh, acutely ingested to fuel the performance we're about to do. So if that's the case, then fasted cardio might be beneficial if you want your body to be more metabolically flexible. And this isn't going to happen immediately. This is a long-term process that might take weeks. But if you consistently do that, there may be a benefit there. It may help you get leaner in the future, potentially. And this is, I, I would save this strictly for athletes or individuals who are already pretty damn lean. Um, and you're on the last little bit of fat, maybe getting ready for a show, whatever it may be. Um, and for some people, it's just easy to adhere to. If you wake up, have some coffee, and just walk, uh, go on your fast cardio walk, that is easier to adhere to, and you save all your food for afterwards. Um, that typically works better for people's schedule uh, and adherence. The last thing I would say is if you are taking fat burners like Yohimbine, it might be better to do it fasted as well. It's not because fasted is better than fed, but it's because Yohimbine responds in the body better if there's no food present, just caffeine. Um, so there are circumstances where fasted cardio would work, but the idea that fasted cardio outperforms fed cardio is a myth because they have done study after study and it shows uh, it's just not the case. Uh, it's not the case with this one. Men versus women, that is the next myth, uh, that women and men have the same exact needs. Um, there's a lot of research showing that this is false and I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, hormonal profiles, muscle mass, skeletal, uh, bones, everything is different, right? So the metabolism of a male is typically faster than the metabolism of a female. And that's been studied, uh, primarily because we have more, uh, as men, we have more muscle mass. Um, so it, it's really just, uh, a byproduct of having more muscle mass on our body and having the ability to obtain more muscle mass is going to lead to a higher metabolic rate. Uh, so that right there tells you that we can diet and lose weight on more calories than women can. And it's all relative because if, if a female is smaller than a male, then of course, but if a male and a female are the exact same size, it's going to be closer for sure. But the, the male still might have the advantage of uh, more testosterone, more growth hormone, more muscle mass, more potential for muscle mass, and therefore a, a faster metabolic rate. Um, the other side of this myth is that men and women can do the same thing in the gym, and it's just not true. So not only do, if we're speaking metabolically and hormonally, um, men lose weight faster and usually easier than women, but also from a training perspective, men and women shouldn't do the same thing. A lot of people say that they can, and 
although they can do the same thing, it's probably not advantageous. It's probably not beneficial because women are going to want to put more volume in certain places. And sometimes women do better with higher volumes and frequencies with lower rest periods. Uh, and men do better with uh, longer rest periods, higher intensity, lower volumes. Um, now, both, both groups can get away with higher volumes. It's just kind of individually dependent. But we do know, and I, I think they believe this is because of uh, estrogen levels being higher, which is going to positively influence the cardiovascular system. That's going to lead to women not needing to take as much rest, which means high rep, high volume, fast rest periods, getting a lot done in a single session, the density of the workout. It's going to be easier. Frequency, they're going to recover faster because their cardiovascular system is better. So typically, women do really well with high volume, high frequency, and like quick-paced workouts, whereas men might need longer breaks. They're going to lift heavier, and they need more intensity and getting closer to failure in order to see the progress they need. Add to that men are going to have different places they want to target. So I, I want to do a lot of bench press and I want to do a lot of shrugs and bicep work because I want big traps, big biceps, and a big chest. Well, women want big hamstrings, big glutes, and probably like a nice shoulders, triceps area. That's typically the three areas women like in abs. So their volume is going to preferentially go to different places when it comes to program design because they have different goals. Men and women don't have the same goals, and that's that. Um, but there is plenty of studies that show the metabolism effect. So hormonally and metabolically speaking, men do lose weight faster. So they're not the same in that sense. Men do have different training styles than women for multiple reasons. Um, and that's proven through studies and through anecdote. I mean, I've programmed for both men and women for years now, and, and I can tell you that. Um, and then there's another side of this too, where there's different metabolic effects uh, when dieting in men compared to women. Uh, men typically have more weight in their midsection, known as visceral fat, which surrounds the internal organs. Um, so that's not not a good thing because it's it's inside, it's around the organs. However, uh, visceral fat, it, when you lose vi visceral fat, it improves your metabolic rate, helping them burn more calories. So essentially what this is is not only is it easier, but we have more fat available that actually benefits our metabolism. So it's, it's not only easier, but it's kind of like a compounding effect. It gets easier for us. Women um, typically have more subcutaneous fat, which is the fat around their thighs, uh, basically their whole posterior chain. So a lot of times it's like legs, glutes, and hips. Um, and it's because of childbearing, right? That's kind of like where their protective fat layer goes to protect their reproductive organs. Um, and this, this type of fat, like when you lose subcutaneous fat, it does not improve, uh, metabolic risk factors, uh, because this type of fat is just not metabolically active. So what we know about this is that men have more potential to lose productive fat, um, than women and women have less chance because most of their fat is subcutaneous. Now men have a lot of subcutaneous fat too. Um, the fat you see laying over your muscle under the skin, that's subcutaneous. So men always have subcutaneous. It's not something that we can get away from, but we have, we're predisposed to have more visceral fat as well. And that makes a difference. So at the end of the day, like men and women being able to do the same or that fat loss is the same or that things can be remotely close to the same is completely false. It's a myth. Um, there should be differences and there are differences. Um, next, uh, shock the muscle. So this one's interesting because I've even said this years ago, and I think like to an extent, like I talked about in the first uh, myth of the hard gainers, there is there is a time where um, you know 
shocking the muscle is applicable. Like I said with the hard gainers, if, if you're not growing, you're not a hard gainer, you're just not doing the right thing. So you are going to somewhat shock the muscle, but it's not because it's a new stimulus and that new stimulus is going to instantly shock growth. It's because you're changing what you've been doing for so long and this continued new stimulus is going to have a snowball effect leading to those gains. Um, but there was a, there was a research study reviewed, uh, in mass, uh, monthly application of strength sport, I believe is what it stands for. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Really, really good research review. I highly recommend any coach in here, uh, go check that out. And I'm going to quote what they said. They reviewed a study, uh, in a, in a old issue of mass. I can't remember which one it was, um, where powerlifters experienced a substantial amount of hypertrophy and muscle growth. Uh, primarily type one fiber hypertrophy after a brief exposure to low load training with blood flow restriction. While another group of powerlifters just doing normal heavy front squats didn't experience much hypertrophy. For these powerlifters who probably didn't do much, if any, training in the 20 plus rep range for years at a time, a very novel stimulus was able to cause considerable growth in a relatively short period of time. While training they were more accustomed to didn't cause much growth. Thus, I think it's likely that very novel stimuli can boost hypertrophy. However, I think this likely applies to a type of training that you haven't done in months or years, not very seasons training that you cycle through over a period of weeks. So basically what this is saying is that you have to, the only time that shocking the muscle actually uh, will, will result in a result will actually work and come true is, is when you've been doing powerlifting or CrossFit or even bodybuilding for years, for a long period of time, you've never changed it up, and then you make a dramatic change. So these powerlifters who have only been training low, low, uh, high load, low, um, uh, low volume training, strength training for a long time, like years at a time, they shifted gears and do 20 plus reps with blood flow restriction, uh, really maximizing myofibril hypertrophy and in, in the pump and met- metabolite accumulation. They saw extreme growth in a short period of time, and it makes sense because they they've never done it. They haven't done it in years. It's the same reason why newbie, excuse me, newbie gains happen. If somebody's never trained before, and you throw them in the gym, they're gonna grow like crazy because they've never had that experience. They've never had that stimulus. But a lot of times, it is uh, it's a consistent exposure to a new stimulus, not just a direct new stimulus. So. Uh, the, the shock the muscle thing is not, it's not that it's a complete myth, but it's that it's a very improper way of explaining what's actually happening. Um, because if these people were to throw in this blood flow restriction at 20 plus rep range every few weeks, it wouldn't have the same effect. There wouldn't be this, this super compensation or this, this insane growth period um, in a relatively short period of time. Next, we have training uh, should change for fat loss. So training should change for fat loss. There's, there's one way that it should, and it's not, uh, it's not backed by research. It's purely experience-driven, and it's, it's independent to the person. It's individual. Um, and the only time training should ever change for fat loss is if you need to lower total volume because your lack of recovery due to being in a caloric deficit. However, usually you don't need to worry about that because as you go into a bigger deficit, your body will compensate and you will not be able to lift as heavy. So your intensity naturally lowers during a cut and therefore you don't even have to tamper with volume typically. Um, So when you go into a diet, the reason this is a myth is because a lot of people think, well, when you go into a diet, you want to do high rep ranges so you get more of a burn, you're burning more calories, more energy expenditure, and it's just not true. Um, Maybe you want to switch it up to full body training because that might potentially burn more calories. That's great. 
But when we look at volume, when we look at strength training, the number one priority for training during fat loss phases is going to be maintaining muscle mass and strength. So rather than trying to do anything to improve fat loss, you're purely, purely trying to do something to maintain the muscle mass you already have on your body while you lose fat during the diet. And that's, that's the only thing you should be working, worried about. So uh, the myth itself is pretty simple. Training, quote unquote, training should change during fat loss phases. And it's just not true. You should try to maintain as much of your volume, as much of your intensity, as much of the, the total work you're doing throughout a diet because that is the absolute best way to maintain muscle during that diet. Myth number eight. Yep, eight. A calorie is a calorie. So all calories are created equal. Um, a good example of this is 190 calories from a sweet potato. I have it all pulled up right here. So we got 190 calories. We have 43.7 grams of carbs, so 44 grams of carbs, 4.2 grams of uh, protein, 7 grams of fiber. Those are the macros of that, right? Uh, we also have 80 milligrams of calcium, 1,000 milligrams of potassium, a milligram of iron. We have 40,000 milligrams of vitamin A. We have 41 milligrams of vitamin C. So we have a good amount of vitamins and minerals, and we have a good amount of carbs, fiber, and a little bit of protein. Now, if we look at 190 calories from a Pop-Tart, uh, a frosted strawberry toaster pastry to be exact, we have 190 calories still, but we have 4.5 grams of fat, uh, then which could potentially be trans fat. Uh, we have 35 grams of carbs, so less carbs, 0.5 grams of fiber, so barely any fiber, 15 grams of sugar, which is 15 times more than the other because the other had zero, and then half the protein at two grams. Um, we have no calcium, no potassium. We have 500 milligrams of vitamin A, but no vitamin C, no iron, basically no vitamins and minerals. And the point I'm trying to make here is that in one scenario, we have a, uh, a sweet potato, a whole food, and we have a little bit of protein. We have a good amount of fiber. Um, I, I apologize. There is sugar in a sweet potato, but it's, a, it's obviously a different type of sugar. It's not processed sugar. Um, but we have a little amount of protein. We have a good amount of carbs. Um, we have good healthy sodium in there and we have a good amount of fiber. On top of that, we have calcium, potassium, vitamin A, vitamin C. We have a bunch of different vitamins and minerals with a pop tart. We have basically zero vitamins and minerals, half the protein, not as many carbs and no fiber whatsoever. And we have fats added onto that, which are not going to be healthy fats either. So Although from a weight loss perspective, we could make the argument that, yeah, you could trade out 190 calories from a sweet potato for a Pop-Tart if you wanted to, as long as you hit your calories. And that is true. The problem with this is there is so many different repercussions or, or reactions to the type of foods we eat that we're not taking account for when it comes to calories. When we consume a sweet potato and we have good starch that's going to be stored in the muscle, it's going to help recovery better. It's going to help balance thyroid and cortisol better. It's going to give us fiber to aid digestion better. Um, it is easier to digest as a whole. It's going to have more vitamins and minerals, which are going to lead to more nutrient efficiencies and making sure that we are recovering adequately on an internal level as well. A Pop-Tart is just empty calories. There's tons of processed sugar. Um, it might give you a little short-term fuel in a training session, but there's no real added benefit to that, and it could potentially cause uh, more digestive issues than a sweet potato would, of course. Add to that, one Pop-Tart is way less filling than a sweet potato. Sweet potato has much more food volume, um, especially because it has so much more fiber, and therefore we're going to stay more satiated throughout the process because of that sweet potato. 
And, and all this to say is that you shouldn't be wasting your calories on food like Pop-Tarts, but on very rare occasions because when it comes to consistency, it comes to general health for your body, and it comes to maximizing the nutrients delivered through the calories you're getting, you're going to be much better off with going with the sweet potato. And I think the easiest way to look at this is that short-term fat loss can be the same as long as you're hitting protein and you're eating whatever the hell you want in your calories, but long-term maintenance of that fat loss is going to be much more difficult if we skip out on these healthy foods because of the the disadvantage it has with missing out on nutrients essentially and, and not staying satiated and being deprived of, of feeling full and being deprived of micronutrients. So a calorie is a calorie is just not true. Uh, 190 calories from sweet potato is not the same as 190 calories of Pop-Tart. They're just plain and simple. I don't care who makes the argument calories in calories out matters but at the end of the day a calorie is not a calorie and if we even add to that we could go 190 calories of a chicken breast is different than 190 calories of a sweet potato because one has way more carb one has no carb one has way more protein one has next to no protein one has way more fiber one has no fiber they're both really good for us but they are different from a macronutrient perspective and our body digests breakdown and uses protein differently than it uses carbohydrates. So again, a calorie is not a calorie because a calorie from protein is used in a completely different way than a calorie from carbohydrates. Next, we have that a low-carb diet beats a high-carb diet. Um, so this is the second to last one. I have two studies I want to talk about for this one because, you know, Time and time again, there's there's definitely cases where a low-carb diet might work better, but primarily it's because of adherence. If you adhere better to a low-carb diet, then it's great. But the main thing we're trying to do is create a caloric deficit, obviously. Um, I would also say that occasionally there are, there are scenarios with um, hy hypo or hyperthyroidism and PCOS that you might want to be on a low or a high-carb approach depending on which end of the spectrum you're on and depending on how it's affecting you. Um, so there are times where you play with carbs depending on special scenarios, but in general, it doesn't matter. And there's a, there's one specific guy that came to mind first when I wrote this myth down of low carb diets being high carb diets. Um, and that is, uh, this guy named Andrew Flinders Taylor. He's from Australia and he lost, uh, 117 pounds in one year. Um, and his whole thing was make your food boring and your life interesting. So what he did is, is he started his journey at 334 pounds. Um, when the when the experiments began, um, it led to insane results. I mean, he lost 117 pounds after just one year of what he calls Spud Fit Challenge. And all he ate for a full year was potatoes. He literally just ate potatoes um, for every single meal, every single day for almost a year. And he lost 117 pounds. So two things to note from here. One, he didn't build – I mean, you can see the before and after pictures. He didn't build much muscle. So it's purely just weight loss. Um which makes sense because it's just calories in versus calories out. Now, if he would have equated protein, he might have built some muscle during the process as well, but he didn't because he would have had to add protein shakes or whey protein or Greek yogurt or something in there to give him protein source outside of potatoes. So he had very minimal protein. He had very minimal uh, fats and he had ultra high carbs. I mean, think of eating your entire diet of carbs. You're probably eating a thousand grams of carbs a day. But this just goes to show that it's truly calories in versus calories out. And you can't say that low carb beats high carb because what worked for him was removing all the interesting foods and just eating potatoes every day and then trying to do more things for himself, making his life more interesting, his food more boring, quote unquote. Um, the second 
uh, study I want to use for this is from this guy named Dr. Kempner. And, and a lot of people know about this if you're a coach, but it's, it's like this, uh, they either called it the rice diet or the, yeah, they called it the rice diet. I always call it the white rice diet cause that's what they ate. But, um, he documented the benefits of treating his patients, uh, by tracking their changes in cholesterol, blood pressure, blood sugar, and body weight, um, as well as progress pictures. Uh, but 93% of the patients that had elevated cholesterol benefited with an uh, average reduction from 273 milligrams per deciliter uh, before treatment to 177 milligrams per deciliter, which is insane. Um, they're greater than those, these reductions in cholesterol, these results are better than what they see in the most powerful statin drugs that they have on the market. Um, and obviously without having to buy the drug or taking the risk of make taking prescription pills. Um, his numbers also showed uh, that the high carb diet, just full of rice, improved blood sugars and often actually cured type two diabetes, which is different than what most people would think. Um, and the biggest thing is that it reduced obesity. Like these guys lost tons of weight. On average, they lost 63.9 kilograms, which is 141 pounds. So a bunch of obese individuals lost 141 pounds on average, which means some lost more. Um, and this was uh, by uh, 43 of the patients got through it and uh, achieved normal weight. And I can't remember how many were in, I'll have to, I'll, I'll link the paper that breaks this whole study down, but I can't remember how many were actually in the study. But point being is they literally just ate rice all day. So same exact concept as the potato diet. They just ate rice and they lost 140 pounds on average. And they improved blood markers. They improved cholesterol. They improved blood pressure. They improved blood sugars. And they often cure type 2 diabetes. Or for those who are pre-diabetic, they're no longer pre-diabetic, which is just insane. Uh, but all to say, calories in versus calories out is the most important thing. And I'll always recommend people track protein, they track carbs and fats because it does help with adherence. It helps with performance. It helps with recovery. But if we're just talking about weight loss here, it doesn't matter. And at the end of the day, the, my main take home point is that low carb diets do not beat high carb diets. They just don't, they can't because calories in versus calories out is all that matters. And these two studies, the potato study and the rice diet study, both prove this, um, to be factual. The last myth of the day is keto is superior for fat loss. Um, or fat burning. Um, so there, there's, there was a meta-analysis that uh, went over um, a bunch of keto studies, and it found that compared to a standard diet, the keto diet uh, was conducive to small improvements in weight loss, so like a few percentage, but it was statistically significant enough for them to put in there um, within the first year, which means it did outperform the non-keto diet for within the first year. Um, however, long-term, after that year, adherence became a big problem uh, and the weight loss effect completely diminished with time. So basically, the the rebound effect of these people who did the keto was much greater than the people who did the standard diet protocol. Um, there was another paper who compared a low-calorie ketogenic diet to a standard low-calorie diet, um, and they found in obese patients that the keto diet was significantly more effective than a standard diet uh, during a 12-month diet period. Uh, but when you really dig into the study, and, and I'm not the first to do this, there's multiple articles explaining um, 
what was wrong with it. But essentially, the standard diet was normal, right? It was a range between 14 to 1800 calories, depending on the person. Um, and the macro ratios were pretty reasonable uh, 45 to 65% carb, 25 to 35% fat, and 15 to 25% protein. A little bit low on protein, but that's okay. Um, it was a general moderate diet. Um, but the keto diet was way more in depth. Like they had three evolving phases. So basically, what they did is they started the people on the low calorie keto diet um, on a very low diet. So they went even lower in calories, they extremely low calorie diet that was primarily protein, which obviously increased rapid fat loss at the beginning. So basically think about this, an extreme deficit, and you're basically only eating protein. Of course, you're going to lose a ton of weight. Um, and that's how the first two months were to kickstart things. And then they changed to a balanced ketogenic diet over the period of time for the rest of the diet. Um, so to me, like if you're going to give that group that much of an advantage out the gate, you can't contribute their success of being a little bit better with fat loss overall over the course of 12 months to ketogenic dieting. You can contribute that to periodization, going through a, an extreme diet with high protein at the beginning and then phasing your diet as the months go on. Um, and the reason why keto is so popular for uh, fat burning, quote unquote, fat loss is because a lot of people think that, it, and it's the same thing as the fasted cardio I talked about. Um, with fasted cardio, the the body it hasn't consumed any fuel and it is running on ketones. Therefore, it is preferentially going to use more fats during that session. Doesn't mean there's going to be more total fat loss off the body or that total calorie expenditure by the end of the day is any better. But it does mean that during that session, you are burning more fat than you are carb. And that makes sense. Well, if you're on a keto diet, you're going to drop carbs significantly. You're going to increase protein uh, or I'm sorry, you're going to decrease protein and you're going to increase fats. So if 70 to 80% of your diet is coming from fat, sometimes even more depending on how extreme keto you're going. What kind of fuel do you think you're going to burn for daily activity and training in the gym? Fat, because it's 80% of your diet. So only fuel you're taking in uh, in enough quantity to actually utilize as fuel, uh, right? So like it's the same way if you eat too much protein, your body will start going through gluconeogenesis and start turning that protein into glucose so that you can burn the protein as fuel because you don't have carbs or you're taking in too much protein, which is not advantageous. We don't want that. The same thing happens here. Your body is preferentially using fats all day, every day, because it's the only thing it's taking in. So of course, it's not going to burn carbs. Um, so a lot of studies came out and it showed this significant improvement in fat burning or fat utilization as fuel when we, people ran keto. So people associated that with fat loss and fat burning. And it's just not the case because uh, when all things are created equal, it doesn't pan out to be any different in the long term. And I would argue for an anti-keto diet because from an adherence standpoint, a performance recovery standpoint, I haven't found keto to be very effective. So that is the 10 myths, guys. If you have any questions on any of those, always feel free to hit me up. Like I said, my email is cody at tailoredcoachingmethod.com. You can message me on Instagram at cody.boomboom. Or if you have some myths that you would love to hear me talk about, that you didn't hear me go over on this podcast today, drop it in the podcast forum question. So there is a link in the description of this podcast. It says, ask boom, boom, click that. You can fill out the form. You can ask me any question. You can throw out some myths and then I will bring them up on the next Q and A. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. 
please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.